So thanks for uh, joining us this morning. We're going to be back in Acts uh, chapter 24 today, if you want to find that in your Bible, Acts 24. But first, I want to talk to us just a minute about uh, something that we do a thousand times a day, probably, and that's make decisions. Just think about what's already happened uh, today. When your alarm went off, you had to decide whether you were going to get up or sleep a few more uh, minutes. You had to decide whether to come to church or not. You had to decide uh, whether you were going to have two donuts or uh, six donuts this morning. You had to decide what to wear. Some of you had to decide what your children were going to wear. Some of you had to decide whether you were going to let your husband wear what he decided he was going to wear. But have you ever thought about why we make the decisions that we do? Let me make an observation. That observation is I think we often make decisions based on the anticipated consequences or the results of those decisions, the anticipated results of the decisions that we make. So we review in our minds what the probable results will be for the various options we can think of, and we select the one that's going to give us the most favorable outcome. Now, when we're children, we make those decisions based on short-term results and often selfish results, thinking of ourselves. And as we grow older, we're taught to uh, think longer term and think about others, not just ourselves. But throughout our lives, I think we're encouraged and we're taught to make decisions based on anticipated consequences. You agree with that? I think it's a perfectly valid framework for making decisions in most cases, but at other times it could be exactly the wrong thing to do. Because sometimes we're called to simply ignore the potential results or consequences and simply do the right thing. Now, I remember a time when I was convicted of that. Years ago at work, we were having an issue around personnel, and we were... <laughs> discussing all kinds of options and couldn't make a decision and as I was praying about it one day it's like the Holy Spirit spoke to me you've had that experience where you just in your mind you feel the Holy Spirit's giving you a message and the message was David you know what the right thing to do is and I was really set back by that and so shortly thereafter at a meeting at work this other employee came in and we were discussing this issue and I said here's the, let's try this Let's just forget what all the potential results will be from the, the options we're talking about and just tell me what you think the right thing to do would be. And it took a couple of times to get the point across and finally it, it didn't take him but just a few seconds literally once he understood and I wrote down what he said. He said, I'm not sure this would be the smartest thing to do but it would be the right thing to do by your definition. And I said, perfect, let's do that. And we did it, and everything worked out just fine. But it was a great lesson that I needed to hear and reminded of, and that's that we frequently, I would say, most of the time, we know what the right thing to do is. Either through the Holy Spirit or through our previous teaching or through Bible study, whatever reason, oftentimes we know what the right thing to do is, but frequently we talk ourselves out of it. And that's what I was doing in this issue at work. Now, the Bible is full of examples of people 
who did the right thing when faced with difficult decisions. Think of Abraham, his decision to let Lot have the more fertile Jordan Valley instead of the more arid high ground. Joseph's decisions to honor his masters both in, in slavery and in prison and even his decision not to retaliate against his brothers when he had the opportunity. King David's decision to humble himself and confess his sins with Bathsheba and Uriah. I think of Daniel's decision to not defy himself by eating the king's food which was prohibited for the Jews. I think of Nehemiah's decision, a servant, to ask the king of Persia for permission to go build the wall around the rebellious city of Jerusalem. And we could go on and on and on through the Bible of people who simply did the right thing when faced with difficult decisions. In fact, we've seen it time and time again in the book of Acts that you've been studying. Well, the Bible makes it clear, and I think our own experiences can testify to the fact that when we simply do the right thing, God honors it. Not always in ways that we expect, and not always in ways that are immediately obvious, but in ways that if we pay attention, we'll eventually recognize. I think of a scripture from 1 Samuel chapter 2 when God was speaking to the priest Eli who had failed to discipline his own children and God told Eli, those who honor me, I will honor. Now last week in Acts chapter 23, we saw someone who, when faced with a difficult decision, failed to do the right thing. The Roman commander Claudius Lysias found himself in a bind. He had Paul in prison or in custody and he knew Paul was innocent of any criminal charges. In fact, he stated as much in a letter that he sent to the governor. So the right thing to do for Claudius was to simply release Paul. But he also believed that if he released him, he was going to incur tremendous pressure from the Jews who would not be happy if he let Paul go. So what does he do? His decision is to defer the decision to someone else. That's one way we can respond to difficult decisions. Let someone else make them. Then somehow they're responsible and we're off the hook. So Commander Claudius transfers Paul to Governor Felix in Caesarea at the end of chapter 23. Now who is Governor Felix? In the Roman Empire, they were organized by provinces, and each province was ruled by a governor. In Judea, Felix was the governor. He was actually the 12th governor of Judea. Pontius Pilate, in the same role, was the 5th governor of Judea. And Rome also allowed puppet kings to be set up in different regions around the Roman Empire. And in Palestine, King Herod during the time of Christ was the puppet king of Palestine. During this time, his great-grandson, Herod Acriba II, is now the king. And we'll read about him in the next chapter. So the government was organized by governors and kings, but the governors had the real Roman authority. Now Felix and his brother Paulus were actually freed slaves. They grew up in Greece and they were enslaved, but they were freed by the Roman Emperor Claudius 
And Paulus, Felix's brother, was a specially trusted friend of Emperor Claudius and eventually was the treasurer, chief of the treasury for the Roman Empire. He had a very high position with Claudius. And as a favor to Paulus, Claudius was granted to Felix the governorship of Judea in 52 AD. So he was there because of a favor that was done to his brother. And he held that position in Judea for six years. So Felix was the governor of Judea for six years. Now by all accounts, Felix was a violent man. He was corrupt. He was money hungry. He was generally hated by the Jews and not respected by the Romans. This was Governor Felix. So Paul had to be wondering, what kind of treatment am I going to get when I show up and have a hearing before Governor Felix? So let's turn to Acts 24 then and look at our passage for today. And we'll start in verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. So Ananias, the high priest, himself goes to Caesarea, a distance of 60 miles from Jerusalem. Unusual for the high priest to, to travel to attend a trial, but he came all the way to Caesarea to testify against Paul. And remembering the debacle that they had in Jerusalem just... Uh, a few days, six days previous, they bring Tertullus with them. Tertullus is literally, in the Greek, an orator, a spokesman or an attorney. So they bring Tertullus with them, remembering how bad it was at their previous hearing before Commander Claudius. So we'll pick it up in verse 2. And when they had summoned Tertullus, began to accuse him, saying... Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. Now, what is Tertullus doing? He's buttering up Governor Felix. He's putting all kinds of flattery upon Governor Felix. None of it true. He says... Uh, there have been all kinds of much peace since he'd been governor. Exactly the opposite was true. There was uprising after uprising that he had to quash. There was no peace, but this is what Tertullus says. And he says, reforms are being made. Also not true. No record of any reforms made by this man, Governor Felix. So the high priest and the elders that were there had to be sitting on their hands and biting their tongues as this professional attorney says all this good thing about the man they despise. And then Tertullus brings the charges against Paul, starting in uh, verse 4. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots amongst all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. 
So it doesn't say in verse 9 how the Jews joined in. They might have just been nodding their head or, or, mm-hmm or groaning or whatever, but somehow they gave the impression that what Tertullus was charging Paul with was all true. So let's look at these charges that Tertullus brings against Paul. In the first half of verse 5, he says Paul has been a plague, literally a pest, a pestilence, a troublemaker, stirring up trouble where? All over the world. What a charge. This guy has been a pest all over the world. As children, it's what my brothers and sisters and I accused each other every time we got in the car. All right? David's just being a pest. Well, she was a pest first, you know. They were all over the world. Paul had been a pest. Now, actually, the legal charge that Tertullus was insinuating was the crime of sedition. Because in the Roman Empire, anybody who caused trouble or disturbed the peace was considered a treason or was considered treason against the empire. The Romans placed a high value on peace, they said. It wasn't actually peace, it was compliance. <laughs> because if you didn't comply, there was nothing but peace. I mean, it, you, were, you came down on hard if you didn't comply with the Roman rules. And it was also a catch-all accusation. If anybody wanted to get rid of somebody, they accused them of being a troublemaker or sedition, and they could be eliminated. Think about it. That's essentially the charge against Jesus Christ. There was no valid charge against Jesus, so they accused him of sedition, being a troublemaker, stirring up trouble. Well, that's what they accuse Paul of. That's what he accuses Paul of in verse 5a. The second half of verse 5, Tertullus goes on to say he's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect, the sect of Jesus. Now, only legal religions were allowed in Rome, recognized religion, and... Christianity wasn't a recognized religion. So they accused him of leading an illegal religion. And the third thing they accused him of in verse 6 is that he attempted to desecrate the temple in Jerusalem. Now the charge actually changed from their previous accusations. Previously they said he actually did desecrate the temple. Here Tertullus, knowing how weak his case is, says he attempted to desecrate the temple. Now, the Romans allowed the Jews to police their own temple. And the accusation, as we said previously, was that Paul had brought Gentiles into the inner courts. So now Tertullus says, well, he was trying to bring Gentiles into the inner court. Now, look back at verse 4 for just a minute. Verse 4. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. Essentially, what Tertullus, the attorney, is saying is, I'll be brief. Now, when a preacher says, I'll be brief, he's essentially saying, I've said too much already, but I have more to say. When an attorney says, I'll be brief, oftentimes he's saying, I know I have a weak case, and if I talk too long, you'll know it too. And in fact, Tertullus had a very weak case. He knew he had a weak case. It was unconvincing. And what they really needed was a favor from Governor Felix. So that was the charges against Paul. Let's see how he responds in verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, interesting, Felix seems almost detached from the whole hearing, doesn't he? He doesn't even say anything. He just... 
He hears, the, he hears Tertullus make it do his flattery. He doesn't interrupt him. Uh, maybe he enjoyed it. I don't know. He knew it was untrue, just like the Jews knew it was not true. He doesn't say anything. When it comes to turn for Paul, he just turns to Paul and nods at him, and Paul starts talking. And Paul says, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Now, on first blush, that might seem like Paul was also trying to flatter Felix, but he wasn't flattering. In fact, Felix had been the judge as the governor for four of his six years by now, and he had served two years as an assistant to the previous governor. So he had been judging cases in Israel or in Palestine for about six years right now. So he wasn't buttering him up. And then Paul says something very interesting. You can verify that it was not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. Basically, he says, I admit I was at the scene of the alleged crime. Now, that could be good news for a lawyer. I mean, he's starting to make agreement that, yeah, I was in Jerusalem. I was at the alleged scene of the crime. That probably got everybody's attention when Paul said that. But then he continues. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you. Now he's really got their attention. Those are words every prosecutor wants to hear. And I confess to you. That according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. So Paul addresses the charges from Tertullus and the Sanhedrin one by one. First, the charge of sedition in verse 12 and 13. He says, I did come to the temple, but I came to worship. And there was no arguing, there was no troublemaking anywhere, there's no evidence that I did anything at the temple other than worship. And actually, Felix already knew this, didn't he? He got a letter from Claudius, Commander Claudius, in the previous chapter that said, there's really, there's no criminal charge against this man. He didn't do anything wrong. It's really a religious dispute. So Paul was telling Felix what Felix already knew. There is no validity to their charge of sedition. And no evidence for them to bring against it or they would have. The second charge he said about being a ringleader of an illegal religion in verses 14 and 15. As we talked about earlier, he says, I confess. The NIV says, I admit, or 
you know, it is true. And then he tells them what's true. He says, first of all, he said, I worship the same God that these men worship. And I believe everything that's written in the law and given by the prophets. In other words, Christianity is not a sect. Christianity is perfectly aligned with what God has revealed in the Old Testament through the law and the prophets. And the second thing he tells them is that my accusers and I actually share the same hope of the resurrection. Now it's interesting he would say that because it's absolutely true for the vast majority of Jews at that time. They believed in the hope of the resurrection. But it didn't apply to the high priest and the Sadducees. Many of the men that were sitting before him. So once again these men had to bite their tongue and sit on their hands as Paul basically said. Yeah, all Jews believe in the resurrection. And I share the same hope. So Tertullus had these guys on a short lease, didn't he? I mean, they don't speak for the entire trial. So Paul tells them, actually, I have the same, I worship the same God as the Jews. I have the same respect for the law and the prophets. And I have the same hope in the resurrection as these men do. And then the third charge of him attempting to desecrate the temple, he says basically it's not true. The charge was initially brought by some Jews from Asia Minor. We talked about several weeks ago, probably from Ephesus. And then he says, where are they? Where are these men? In Roman law, if you accuse somebody, you were required to go to the hearing and answer charges to make the accusation in person. So Paul's basically telling Felix, they're charging me. Some guys from Asia charged me with desecrating the temple. They're not even here to make the accusation. Where are they? And then Paul makes his closing argument in verses 20 and 21. He basically says, if my accusers had any valid charges, let them speak up. He said, the real reason I'm here is a dispute about the resurrection of the dead. And Paul is an absolute master. That's where he wanted the discussion to go. He's steering his discussion towards the gospel. And he remembers that in Jerusalem when they got to this point in the trial, in the hearing before Claudius, that's where the trial blew up. Remember the priest and the Sadducees and the Pharisees all started arguing amongst each other. But again, Tertullus has these guys uncontrolled. They don't say a word. So let's pick it up in verse 22. Paul makes a defense of his charges one by one. Then in verse 22, something interesting happens. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So it says Sir Governor Felix had a very good understanding of the way. He had a very good understanding about Christianity. He had been told before, apparently many times. Think about where he lived. He lived in Caesarea. He'd been there at this point for at least six years. This is the home of Philip the Evangelist and the Christians that we met back in chapter 21. But Felix had all the head knowledge about the way. He knew all about it. So much so 
that when Paul brought up the resurrection of the dead, Felix says, time out. Hearing over. He stopped them in mid-sentence. He just stopped the hearing and said, the hearing's over. He knew what was coming, didn't he? He knew a discussion about Jesus Christ was the next words out of Paul's mouth. So it was decision time for Felix. Felix knew Paul was innocent. He knew what the right thing to do was. And so as he thought about the potential consequences, he could, uh, he could convict, he could, he could do the Romans, a fa- do the Jews a favor and convict Paul of the accusations that had been brought against him. But there were repercussions in Rome for convicting an innocent Roman citizen. And Felix must have been thinking, if I do that, it could be devastating for my career. Or he could simply do the right thing and declare Paul innocent and let him go. But that would probably be devastating to his relationship with the Jews, and that would probably lead to more uprisings, and more uprisings would be devastating for Felix's career. Neither decision sounded real attractive to Felix. So what was his decision? Commander Claudius was faced with the exact same decision a week earlier and he deferred. He deferred to Felix. Now Governor Felix delays or procrastinates. He didn't make a decision. As I was studying this passage, I was reminded about an incident with our son Brian, who's now a very godly man and father of three great kids. But uh, when he was in junior high, he was putting something off. Pam and I were trying to remember this morning exactly what it was he was putting off, but neither one of us could remember. So that's the ravages of old age that you, some of you have to look forward to. But he was putting off something that must have been important. And Pam told him, Brian, you're procrastinating. That's a bad habit to develop. And Brian said, what does procrastinating mean? And Pam said, why don't you go look it up in the dictionary? And Brian says, I'll do it tomorrow. (laughs) So Felix was essentially saying, I'll do it tomorrow. But tomorrow never came because as we'll read in the passages to come, for two years Paul remained in custody and Felix didn't make a decision. He procrastinated for at least two more years. Now unfortunately what to do with Paul was not the only thing that Felix was procrastinating about. And let's read about that picking it up in verse 24. After some days Felix came with his wife Drusilla who was a Jewish who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed... Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do a favor, the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. 
So Felix comes back to talk to Paul and he brings his wife Drusilla with him. Now Drusilla is an interesting character. She was the daughter of the Jewish king Herod Agrippa I and the sister of the current king Agrippa II. At the time of Acts 24, she was about 18 years old. And this was her second marriage. Her first marriage was to the king of Amasa, which was a region near current-day Lebanon. In every historical account I read about Drusilla, talked about how beautiful she was. She was apparently a very attractive girl. So much so that when Felix met her, he seduced her away from her first husband, and she became Felix's third wife. And they were living in adultery at the time. Now, Drusilla would have been a celebrity of her day because of her beauty and her lifestyle. Today, she'd probably have her own reality TV show or she'd be the, the hit on uh, social media. But it appears in verse 24 that Drusilla must have had some interest in learning more about Jesus Christ because she and her husband Felix come to talk to Paul about just that, faith in Christ Jesus. And then verse 25, which I think is the key verse to this entire passage, first talks about Paul preaching to Felix and Drusilla. And what does he talk to them about? He talks to them about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Righteousness, God's requirement to live holy lives, free from corruption, free from dishonesty, free from immorality, to live in a way that honored God. Felix and Drusilla had to be squirming a little bit, don't you think, as Paul talked to them about righteousness. And then he talked to them about self-control. Perhaps Paul talked to them about the fruit of the Spirit like he did it years earlier with the Galatian believers. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We're left only to imagine what Felix and Drusilla must have been thinking as they sat listening to Paul describe at least one gift that they desperately needed and probably wanted, self-control. And then Paul talked to them about the coming judgment. Think about that. Paul's telling Felix, the judge, that actually he's the one on trial. And Felix's judge is not going to be a procrastinator. And Felix's judge is not going to bow to public pressure or be amenable to bribes. He was going to judge justly. Felix's judge was simply going to do the right thing based on the facts about Felix's and Drusilla's lives. And Paul most surely told Felix that in God's court, the case against Felix was strong. And his conviction was sure. And without question, based on everything we know about Paul, he almost certainly shared the gospel with these two who needed to hear it so desperately. That Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son, had died to pay the penalty that they were so vigorously earning. And they simply needed to do the right thing. To place their faith in Christ Jesus. So once again, it was decision time for Felix. 
He knew what the right thing to do was. In fact, it says in verse 25, he was alarmed or frightened. The Greek word means he was shuddering as he thought about what Paul was sharing with him. Moved by the reality of what Paul was telling him. But he almost certainly thought about the potential consequences. How would the Jewish leaders react to his personal acceptance of the way? The way that they were trying to squash. How would his brother-in-law, King Herod Agrippa II, view a conversion? How would Rome react to him worshiping someone other than the emperor? Would he lose his job? Would he lose his privileges? And tragically, Felix's decision was once again to delay, to procrastinate until, it says in the scripture, a more opportune time. In other words, it's not convenient for me to place my faith in Jesus Christ right now. I'll call you when it's more convenient. And then we see in verse 26, clearly the flawed character of this man, Felix. Because as long as Paul was going to remain in custody, and as long as Felix refused to do the right thing and release Paul, Felix might as well take advantage of the situation and seduce a bribe out of Paul. He knew from Paul's previous testimony that he had brought a financial gift to the church in Jerusalem, so maybe Paul had some more money. Maybe he had some he could share with Felix. Now we don't know how many times Felix called Paul to talk to him. When they met, we don't know what Felix said or what he asked. But we can be pretty sure about what Paul talked about. Now, we don't know if Felix or Drusilla ever placed their faith in Christ. I hope they did. But there's no evidence to suggest that that would be true. Drusilla died 23 years later, along with her son in Pompeii during the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. She was one of only two people whose names was recorded who actually died during that disaster. She was a celebrity. She was well-known. Felix, as we was hinted at in verse 27, was removed from his position by Rome two years later for using excessive violence to squash a rebellion or an uprising in Caesarea. Even too violent for the Roman authorities to swallow. So he was replaced by Governor Festus. And we know very little about Felix after that time. Now, I see Bert sitting over there. As Bert Moritz might say, let's bring this lesson in for a landing. Or as I might say, I'll be brief. <laughs> My assumption is that some of us are facing decisions where we know what the right thing to do is, but we're not prepared to do it. And left on our own, We'll either defer, we'll let someone else make the decision for us, or we'll delay. We'll procrastinate until a more convenient time.
So let's start with the most important decisions first. Some of us know we need to place our faith in Jesus Christ, just like Felix. But it's not convenient right now. It's just not the right time to make such a major, life-changing decision. So my question for us is, what makes you think it'll be convenient later? Or what makes you think there will even be a later? Now's the right time to do the right thing and place your faith in Jesus Christ. And how about the other decisions that we're going to face this week? For some of them, I will admit that there simply are no right things to do. But my experience is that that's typically the very trivial decisions that we have to make. For example, what flavor of bluebell ice cream should we buy? Or what couch should we take a nap on this afternoon? I mean, there's no wrong decision. You can't, you can't go wrong with some of the decisions. But we're all facing some decisions where we know there must be a right thing to do. And you may be facing such a decision right now. If not, I trust that we all will be soon. So here's what I believe the Bible encourages us to do. First, quit thinking about the potential consequences of all the options that you have. First of all, you're going to guess wrong. And second, there are no limits or constraints on what God can do. Zero. So stop trying to guess what the consequences might be first. Second, if you don't already know, start seeking God's guidance on what the right thing to do is. Through Bible study, through prayer, through being attentive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And once you know what the right thing to do is, don't defer the decision to someone else. And don't delay the decision until a more convenient time. But depend Depend on the Holy Spirit to help us do it. And depend on God to bring about His will through your obedience. My prayer for all of us this week is that we would test God's guidance about the critical decisions we're facing. Testing by simply doing the right thing and keeping our eyes open to see how God responds. We may not see it immediately, and we may not see it in ways we expect, but I pray that we will see it in God's time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, being patient with us. We ask your forgiveness when we have uh, failed to do the right thing by delaying or deferring or just disobeying. And so, Father, we ask that through your Holy Spirit, you would empower us to do better today, this afternoon, and tomorrow. In Christ's name, amen.